This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. I think burnout, both historically, like over the last hundred years and now has everything to do with precarity, with that feeling of like, I'm barely keeping my head above water. I am unwilling to give up that I will start over from scratch as many times as it takes to get where I want to be. I want to be. You just want to make sure you will get knocked down, but just make sure you don't get knocked out. Knocked out. So your only choice should be go focus on what you can control. 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 Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Kara Golden Show. Join me each week for inspiring conversations with some of the world's greatest leaders, We'll talk with founders, entrepreneurs, CEOs, and really some of the most interesting people of our time. Can't wait to get started. Let's go. Let's go. Hi, everybody. It's Kara Golden, and we are so excited to have our next guest here. This is Ann Peterson, author of Can't Even, How Millennials Became the Burnout Generation. So excited to have you here, Ann. Hi, so excited to be here. Very, very excited. So Ann, for those of you who don't know her, she's a former senior culture writer for BuzzFeed. She also now writes her newsletter, Culture Study, which is such a cool, cool thing. I love reading it. And as a full-time venture on Substack, and Anne received her PhD at the University of Texas at Austin, where she focused on the history of celebrity gossip. Amazing. Like, <laughs> but how many other people had that as, as a focus? I'm just curious. The thing about PhDs is you like kind of you find your like little research area, you know? And so mine was largely like celebrity studies, which is a major area of study within media studies. And then specifically the history of celebrity gossip, which no one had really done. So oh my God, I love it. I love it. Love it. So she focused on that for her PhD, her previous books, too fat, too slutty, too loud. Lots of twos and the scandals of classic Hollywood were featured in NPR, Elle, and The Atlantic. And today we're going to dive into her new book, Can't Even, How Millennials Became the Burnout Generation. Welcome, Anne. Hi. So excited that you're here. So take us back to the beginning after earning the PhD and this incredibly interesting, I would love to focus on that every single day. I think that'd be really Really, really fun. What made you decide to leave academia to pursue a career in journalism? Well, like a lot of people in the humanities in academia, it wasn't entirely my decision. You know, there is an overproduction of PhDs right now and not a ton of full time positions. And so I was assistant professor, visiting assistant professor for several years, and then was on the job market. But at the same time, I had been writing for the internet for several years, kind of on the side, just as like Mm -hmm. using my non-academic voice, especially since I was writing about celebrity. There's a real 
market for, for that content. And I wasn't doing, you know, like People Magazine style stuff. It was more like analyzing what was going on in People Magazine. And people found that really interesting. So when I didn't get a full-time tenure track position in academia, I had kind of inadvertently built a life raft for myself for writing online and had some job offers from a couple of different digital publications. This was in 2014 when there was like lots of jobs in digital media, or at least places were expanding a lot. And so I gave my last final as a professor. And then the next day I got on a plane, moved to Brooklyn and started working at BuzzFeed. That's wild. And so where were you a professor at? At Austin as no, well? Or? I was at Whitman College, which is a small liberal arts college in Washington, yeah. State, which is also yeah. where I went to college. So it was like a particularly special time in my life. And I and I was there for two years. I loved my students. I loved teaching there. I love the town of Walla Walla, which might sound funny to listeners, but if you've ever been there, you probably understand. It's just a really wonderful little place. And I still really miss it. I miss teaching, but I also feel very lucky that I was able to find slightly less precarious employment in the world of digital media. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. And so you moved to Brooklyn, Mm -hmm. you get this great role at BuzzFeed and basically having a great time out there, I bet. And then how did you decide to then go and do this newsletter? Well, so, you know, depending on your familiarity with online writing, there was this huge like explosion of blogs in the mid 2000s, late 2000s. There was really a response to some larger contractions in the media industry. Like there was just mm-hmm. not as many jobs, especially during the Great Recession. A lot of places shut down, laid off tons of people. And blogs were a way for people to either write for very little or just to kind of like you know, get ideas out there really quickly. You know, the immediacy of uh, instant publishing was really attractive to a lot of people. And a lot of the huge names that we associate with digital media now, whether my former editor-in-chief, Ben Smith, who's at the New York Times, or Ezra Klein, who's one of the co-founders of Box, like they were all blogging during that time. And I had a blog during that time called Celebrity Gossip Academic Style. I was like a little WordPress, you know, free WordPress template. And I used it as this great kind of escape valve for all of the thoughts that I was having, especially while I was studying for my comprehensive exams, while I was writing my dissertation. Like, you know, you're funneling a lot of this research into pretty rigid academic prose, but there was so much left over that I wanted to play around with. With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption and logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. So I was blogging on the side and, you know, some people really thrive in that sort of like word dump, instant publishing feedback, you know, generative idea. Like I love writing in that way. And some people like to only let their stuff out when it's very, very polished. And I am in all of those people, but I really miss blogging. And I think a lot of other people miss blogging and also miss reading blogs. So Mm -hmm. many people who are, I think, you know, millennials and Gen X, 
bemoan, really miss the the days of Google Reader when you could like open up the Google Reader tab and then all of your like new posts on all of your favorite blogs would be there. And you didn't have to go into that stew of Facebook and Twitter to find what was interesting to you. Yeah, no, totally. And, and so I think newsletters are a way of recreating that energy and immediacy and community of blogs. And in a way, they can either function like blogs in so much as they are on the internet, right? Like you can go to them physically or you know, you can go to the site on the internet and access them that way. Or if you subscribe, they just come into your inbox. And I know people who are essentially recreating Google Reader in their Gmail tabs by having all the newsletters that they subscribe to just go into one tab. And then they kind of use it either as, oh, at lunchtime, I read my newsletters. Or at night while I'm winding down, I read my newsletters or first thing in the morning. And so I had started a newsletter in 2016. Yeah, right after the election. And it had been on Tiny Letter, which was, I I chose just because it was free. (laughs) But Mm -hmm. I quickly realized like the CMS, the operating system, the way that you enter text into it is pretty janky and they weren't updating it or maintaining it in any capacity. So when Substack came along two years later, at that point I had 5,000 subscribers and I looked at the CMS and I was like, this is beautiful. This is amazing. Why? Like, and it was so easy to transfer your subscribers. So I just switched platforms and was still doing it for free though, as you know, similarly to what I was doing back in the late 2000s as this way to just really kind of dump ideas, dump my reporter's notebook, talk about all of the work that I had done to create a piece, like kind of the, the backstory. And I loved it. It was just, it made me feel like I was scratching an itch. And so I kept doing that. And eventually though, Substack made the pitch after several years, they had been kind of courting me trying to get me to go full-time and to monetize it. And I said, no, 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 I need this, I need this, I need this, in terms of I need legal representation, I need health insurance, I need an editor for longer pieces. And we eventually came to agreement so that I'd have all of those things. That's awesome. So your new book that coming out is called Can't Even. And can you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, this is an outgrowth of an article I wrote in January 2019 called How Millennials Became the Burnout Generation, which is now the subtitle of the book. And I really wrote the article as a way of processing my own burnout, which I didn't know was burnout. Like I refused to call it that or acknowledge it as that. I just thought I was good at working all the time. (laughs) But so I wrote this piece kind of as a way to excavate the different corners of it. And I thought of it really as, as a pretty personal essay that then I tried to expand to some larger generational stuff. And had no idea that it would do what it did, which was go super viral. It has been read by more than 7 million people, like translated into five different languages. <laughs> and so it was pretty easy to think about how I would want to expand that both historically, like looking at the historical causes, but then also expand it way beyond like my white bourgeois middle-class experience to think about burnout for a lot of other people. And what do you think is kind of the key reason? Like what's sort of the the biggest reason why this generation is more prone? I think burnout 
both historically, like over the last hundred years and now has everything to do with precarity, with that feeling of like, I'm barely keeping my head above water. Mm-hmm. And that is a combination of so many things, whether the huge one is economic, but there are so many other things that can make your life feel really fragile, right? If, whether that's health concerns, things going on with your family, immigration status, race, class, location, all of these things. And I think millennials have this kind of weird stew. I mean, people call us the unlucky generation, but luck implies that like there weren't choices that were made to unravel the safety net in in ways that have made it difficult for millennials to find any sort of stability, but also massive amounts of student debt. And then all of that intersecting with the rise of digital technologies that just make it so much easier to work all the time as a coping mechanism for that economic precarity. It's interesting. I feel like the millennial generation too, I mean, and this time it kind of ties into the digital side of things, but it was kind of the the generation that I really saw where measurement, like education and measurement and, you know, everything from test scores to like just really started to be known, right? And I think back on it because I'm not a millennial, but I, I have managed many millennials. And I think it's just, it's amazing how much information like is kind of stored, you know, in millennials mind about how things work, right? And how much money they need to make, what the test scores need to be, what they like. I had pressures, but I had different pressures, right? And I think it's it's fascinating. And I often, you know, think about where is that stopgap? Because like if that amount of information increases over time, what are we setting this next generation up for, right? And the generation after that. So I think it's fascinating. And I think it's part of the reason too why I think some people are sort of doing their own kind of conclusions too, to say like, maybe I don't need to go to college, right? And they're opting out of some of these things, but I'm so curious to hear your perspective. Yeah. So one of the things that I found in my research that was really interesting is the way that this idea of college at any cost kind of, it's part and parcel of this larger idea that's known as the education gospel, which is that it's best for as many people as possible to go to college. And that kind of got twisted into you need to go to the best college that you can possibly get into, right? So for some people, that just means you have to go to college, like whether that's a state college, whatever. And then for some people, it means you need to try, like you need to orient your entire life after age 10 or even before age 10 into getting into the best college possible. And both of those paths, I think, can be harmful in that like some people to do the job that you want to do, you don't need to go to college, Mm -hmm. right? Or if you really, there are things in your life that are more meaningful to you and you kind of just want job, your job to be like, you know, something you do with a third of your time, but it's not going to be your identity. There are all sorts of jobs that are really stable that do not require a traditional four-year degree, Mm -hmm. right? And I think that there has been this real, like this way that we label those sorts of jobs is somehow not as good, not as, you know, prestigious, not as desirable. 
I think there is a big backlash amongst millennials in particular, like who are like, who cares about if my job is cool, if I have no benefits and no stability mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, I am dealing with rolling layoffs all the time, or I'm a gig worker and constantly looking for like the next contract piece of work. When I could just work, like I could be an HVAC installer, right? And I could have, or I could be an electrician and be part of a union that has stability. Like there are just different options. And I do think that, that Gen Z, in part because of Gen X parents, who I think have slightly different ideas about some of these things, but also just probably watching millennials, are maybe going to resist some of these ideologies about what the best way to go forward is, especially mm-hmm. with just the um, towering amounts of student debt that millennials have hanging around our necks is sort of albatross and no stability to oftentimes to, to show for it. Yeah. And I think during COVID, I mean, I'm sure that there is a lot of thought on this. I'm sure there's, I am a Gen Xer and I've got three kids in college and there's been no discount of any sort on these out-of-state tuitions (laughs) whatsoever. And it's just, I mean, it's kind of, you know, comical. I think by January, I think there's going to be a, you know, mass exit, I think, from a lot of these, you know, people's opinions. And especially if you're paying for it on your own, I mean, which, I mean, I graduated with student debt and I was in state tuition. If I would have had out-of-state tuition and this would have been going on, I think I would have said, "Mm, sorry, I'm not, I'm not in. So I think it'll be very, very interesting time for sure. Another thing, as you're talking about this, it just made me think I had worked for the Obama administration on trying to build jobs in America. And it was one of the things that we were focusing on is trying to figure out how the middle of the country ultimately, you know, creates jobs. And this just talks about sort of how we identify ourselves. It was interesting how, like at one point we were talking to some people who were former coal miners and coal mines had shut down. And we were talking about, you know, the different types of jobs like call centers or, you know, could we actually create a factory where you were taking plastics that had been recycled from plastic bottle and turn them into like shirts and bags. And the minute that the word like factory came up, it wasn't like, okay, I get it. Like you're creating things. It was like, wait, factory? That's that's like so much worse than actually being a coal miner. And it was fascinating to me. It was like the first time where I opened really, really opened my ears, you know, to this concept that we've in many ways kind of ruined it for, you know, people where they think that there are certain jobs that are, you know, not sort of what they should be doing because maybe, you know, that's not aspirational at all. So I'd be so curious to hear your thoughts on that as well. Yeah. You know, I think that there's all sorts of jobs that if those jobs paid a living wage, and had non-exploitative working conditions and didn't make you feel like crap all the time. And this can be physical labor or call center labor that would just be known as good jobs, right? Mm -hmm. Steady jobs. Like my granddad was an accountant for 3M. He worked there his entire life. I do not think he ever was like, 3M is my life. He never (laughs) thought of himself as purely an accountant. Like accounting was not his identity. It was what he did. It was his vocation. It was not his identity. He retired when he was 55 with a full pension. So he still had like 30 years of his life to live out, uh, you know, divorced from that, that identity. 
And part of the reason he was able to do that was because 3M, especially then, you know, like people had pretty steady working hours. You, you know, everyone from the janitor to an accountant like him to engineers were given things like benefits and pensions. Like it was what we call now a good job. Mm -hmm. And so I think that we oftentimes now substitute in passion, like do what you love and you won't work a day for the rest of your life for actual good working conditions. Right. And I think that millennials were trained, we kind of grew up on that idea of finding a job that is cool, that your parents will think is good and that your parent or your friends will think is cool and have made lots of sacrifices at that altar, right? When there's a chapter in my book that's called do what you'll love and you'll still work every day for the rest of your life. (laughs) So, So how can we think about creating jobs that aren't cool, right? That aren't demanding you to like funnel every part of your personality into them in order to find success, but are just jobs that make it so that you can have, you know, that buzzword that politicians use that I think is oftentimes evacuated, meaning jobs that have dignity. Mm -hmm. What dignity means is not being exploited. And sometimes you need unions in order to do that. And sometimes you need good companies in order to do that. And sometimes you need government regulations to do that. Really, you need all three, right? (laughs) And that's what I'm hoping. I think people can see that more and more is that like, if you just leave it to companies to be like, oh, create some new good jobs, it's not going to happen. The vast majority of jobs that were added, re-added to the economy after the Great Recession we're pretty crappy contingent or temp or, you know, jobs that don't have any sort of stability with them, mm-hmm. whether that's permalancing or driving Uber plus doing another job on the side. They're not good jobs. So <laughs> that's what I think millennials need to understand what the parameters of a, of a good job are. And one of those parameters are boundaries that allow you to have like some form of the rest of your life, right? Yeah, totally. <laughs> Yeah. Well, and I think that that's always been kind of part of, for me, the millennials that have worked with me. I mean, think that they really do value like having, you know, downtime and, and which I think is great. I think being able to have, you know, a life outside of the office is always like to many people in my generation was just not doable if you wanted to be in New York City or, you know, in sort of a, you know, a job that was really kind of prestigious in some ways. How do you think COVID is changing that? I mean, as like I was on a panel with the CFO of Zoom and the other day, and she was announcing that all of their employees can now work remotely, like for the next like year and a half, like they've basically said, you guys can go and work wherever you want. And she said like the happiness factor you know, definitely went up, like people could be closer to their aging parents, or they could, you know, live, they could still make their nice salary, but, you know, be doing it remotely. I think it's great if you work for a company like Zoom, right? But there might be some other businesses that just can't really do that, for example. But I feel like there's a lot more options in 2020, you know, with COVID for people to kind of, like, if you want to live in Montana, and you want to, you know, do something that you would normally be doing in New York or Silicon Valley, maybe you could actually do it. I don't know if you could do it right out of college, right? Like you might have to really get the experience and know that people could 
trust you to trust is the wrong word, but really that you had sort of the ability to kind of work remotely. Cause I, I think like that's another piece of this too. I'm throwing a lot of things in here, but I think it's a, another thing where I think community is also such a big part of millennials and, and also Gen Z. And I feel like a lot of that is really missing and, you know, mental health is becoming more and more of an important discussion, which I think is real. But yeah, I, I'm curious how you think about that as well. So great question, because it's the topic of the next book that I'm working on, which is with my partner, Charlie Wurzel, who's a technology writer for the New York Times. And it is about basically the big problem of work from home, like all the ways that the crappy parts of work could get worse, like the surveillance and the lack of boundaries between home and, and, and work and all those sorts of things, but also like the bigger promise. And I think, you know, the big thing is that the work that we're doing right now from home, it's not working from home, right? We are working from home during a pandemic. Mm-hmm. So many people are dealing with their kids at home. They're dealing with safety issues. They're de- like, there are so many additional stressors that you have to imagine, what would this be like if I could live in proximity to my parents or my in-laws and have that additional caretaking? If I could have friends who were part of this larger community with me, if I could not be worried every time I go out into a public space, if I wasn't stressed out about my democracy all the time, right? Like if there were all of these things. I think about this all the time. I mean, it's true. Yeah. And if you could be working from home in that scenario, and maybe even more importantly, because I don't think that the future is not everyone work from home all the time, right? We're talking specifically about people who worked in offices doing knowledge work, quote unquote, knowledge work (laughs) in some capacity. And also it's probably doesn't mean the end of offices. It means like increased flexibility. So if you live in the suburbs, maybe you go in once or twice a week, right? instead of making that commute every day just because. Or if you live in Montana and your headquarters is somewhere else, then you go in for a week once a quarter and you have actually really dedicated, devoted time that you aren't just like trying to, you know, be creative because you're passing someone on the way to the bathroom, right? Which is always the vaunted thing about open offices. It's like, oh, you have all these people in one space. They're going to be so creative. Like mostly they're just... no. Less creative yeah, and annoyed yeah, all the time. I agree. <laughs> so if you have times that are really meant for that sort of collaboration and creativity and brainstorming and, and real time spent with one another instead of frantically trying to like wedge in meetings amidst doing the rest of your work, I think it could be incredible. And I had a version of this pre-pandemic when I was based in Montana and still working for BuzzFeed, which the headquarters was in Brooklyn. And I, you know, people talk all the time about like, how are we going to revive rural areas? Like, how do we have more representation and and thoughtfulness about places that aren't just the coasts? One way is letting people live where they want to live. I grew up in Idaho. Like the landscape of Idaho and Montana and the Mountain West is my landscape. It's where I feel really happy. And I didn't hate Brooklyn, right? I, I liked living in New York. It's an easy place to feel addicted to living. I couldn't save any money because the cost of living was so high. I couldn't consider, you know, ever having a family. Mm-hmm. But what is given back to you when you allow people to make decisions about where they want to live? Some people love cities. That's great. But giving people some freedom and not having their location be dictated purely by the kind of 
happenstance of it there being a handful of big cities where corporations are currently headquartered could be really, really huge for our country. Yeah, no, I th- I think it's huge. And I think it, it'll be, I'll be very, very interested to see what comes about by next spring and hopefully having, you know, a vaccine and all of those things I think will factor into it, but it will be very, very interesting because I think there are a lot of my friends who are millennials who have said like, you know, the fact that tech offices are closed until whatever, at least till next summer or, you know, and especially women. I mean, the number of women who, you know, are kind of faced with, you know, raising their kids, even though they have great husbands, maybe. But at the end of the day, you know, the buck kind of stops back, you know, with them. And they've just felt like, okay, I'm just going to do this right now because I just don't want the chaos. And then they end up stopping, you know, working for now. And as I've said to many of those people, I actually, between my previous gig before running Hint, I was running the e-commerce and shopping for AOL. And I took that time in the early 2000s, I took off two years, which was like, basically, I had just put, you know, my gravestone down. Like everybody was like, wait, what? Like, how can you take two years off? And I just really like, I wanted to be with my family. I wanted to, I had young kids at the time, but I also just wanted to just like breathe. Right. And like, I think sometimes, you know, we just have to remind ourselves that it's okay to actually do what we want to do. Right. I mean, this is the hard thing, right, is that this is the first female recession of all of the the major recessions that we've had as a country. Hundreds of thousands of women are leaving the workplace. I, I'm working on a piece right now. Listeners can go to my Substack, but I'm looking at working on a piece that talks about, like, I think it's over in just September, over 800,000 women left the workforce. And I think it's only around 150,000 men. So the wage gap is predicted after years of finally closing in just a little bit, right? So it's like 82 cents that women make to the man's dollar, a man's dollar. The wage gap is predicted to spread again during this recession. Like we are taking steps back and that is because we have this massive societal problem because of the pandemic and the government is not responding in a way that actually fixes it. And so who's solving the problem? Women. And we're solving it. I think a lot of women feel relieved in some ways to take a step back from the workplace. But a lot of that relief stems from the fact that they were working two full-time jobs before, right? So now they're just quitting the one job for which they were monetarily compensated. And that sucks. No, it is. It is. No, I mean, it's it's totally, it's a lot. So, so you've been up in Montana now for a few years. Three years, yeah. And what do you think is the biggest thing? I mean, you've obviously been able to get lots done and get your work done and probably was a little scary when you first kind of made that leap. But did you find that you were able to do kind of what you ultimately set out to do? I mean, what I like about what I'm doing now, especially on Substack, which I, you know, I moved from BuzzFeed to full-time at Substack in August is I just feel in control of my own destiny for better or for worse. Mm-hmm. Right? I was a little fatigued with first the contingency and precarity of academia and then going into digital media where it's like, 
oh, well, you know, this is <laughs> your success and failure. It's like the intersection of the like venture capital and then also like the media industry. It's just like two roller coasters at once that go up and down and always worried about like, oh, they're going to be layoffs. Are they going to be pay decreases? What's going to happen? What's going to happen with our company? And so I'm a little, I like that a little bit more, just having some of that stability. And I'm far enough along in my career and I'm insulated from some of the, the larger risk that is often associated with going freelance when you're younger, right? And I have a partner and I, so I have that insulation as well. And also I have health insurance. So like there were things put in place that made it less risky for me. And then I just, you know, I, <laughs> I like being in a place that feels like it's nourishing to me. Yeah. That I can do those things that... I feel are burnout antidotes, which to me is like, I call solitude, or I, or I use this definition of solitude that's borrowed from some other thinkers that's freedom from other people's minds. You don't actually have to be alone to have solitude. You just need to not have someone's mind going inside your mind, whether through a podcast or through talking with other people. And it's it's easy to cultivate solitude in the great state of Montana, population 1 million. And also just being in outdoor spaces is a real- It's huge solve for me. So. Yeah. No, I live in Marin County and yeah. I've said, you know, that, and I lived in New York for many years and I lived in San Francisco as well. And when I moved out, I moved to Marin County when I was starting Hint and I decided that I wanted to find free school, public school. I was the product of public school education. And so I, I mean, that was the main reason. And I never, I went kicking and screaming. I always share with people who are city people because I didn't know how much I missed the outdoors. I grew up in Scottsdale, but when it was 100,000 people in Scottsdale, not what it is today. And my soul needs outdoors. And so my house now backs up to 100 acres of state park and I'm in there every day, at least once. And I'm hiking around and I've said like, it's, saved me through, you know, this trying seven months uh, just to be able to have that outdoor space. And I think it's just, it's something that, you know, it definitely nurtures, but I, I still love going to the city and I'm, I don't regret ever living in New York, you know, or San Francisco. And I'm so curious because I, you know, one thing that I said to you too, is I am kind of challenged by like, what would you tell yourself? You're, you know, 20, 21 year old self who's graduating from school, like, do you have the same options to go? Right. Like, I remember my dad said to me when I was graduating from school, he was like, you know, go to a city, go work for a brand, and you'll never regret it. And I still believe my first job was at Time Magazine. And then I went to CNN. Like, I've just, I've worked for brands and it didn't even matter what I did at those brands half the time. It's just, and BuzzFeed, right? Like, it's like people remember those brands. And I think that what's challenging for this next generation, and I have a daughter that's graduating from school and in May, and, you know, and I think about this too, I don't know if you can work remotely and still kind of feel what you envision feeling or learning I don't know. I think it'll be very, very interesting. And I'm not sure any manager can actually say that it's, you know, oh yeah, it's for sure. You're going to get the culture. You're just going to be on a screen for, you know, doing this. I mean, the one thing about Gen Z is that they know how to form culture online. 
that yeah. is not for them, you know, yeah. um, and younger millennials. And I think that one problem for a lot of Gen Zers is that when there was this, this idea that you had to go to the city and then oftentimes these brands are paying less and less, right? Mm-hmm. Or they're only these kind of like, they're like gig jobs that you get. Like they're actually subcontractor jobs. So there it's very little and, and not a lot of security. And the cost of living there is, is substantial and the cost of moving is substantial. So it cuts out this whole portion of the workforce that would like to be part of this, right? Like I always thought of this when we were hiring for interns at, at BuzzFeed and I would look at the applicant pool and it said like, oh yeah, we're looking, we can look at people from all of the United States, but really they were looking at people who were in the tri-state area because they didn't want, they knew what they could pay someone mm-hmm. and like the cost to have someone relocate from Florida mm-hmm. for a a three-month internship that paid so little, like that is incredible amount of money that most people who either are dealing with student debt or, or who don't have kind of a family safety net, they just, it's impossible. Yeah. So when you open it up the workforce to people who don't necessarily have those connections or that safety nets, you're actually, you're opening up a much broader workforce, I think. Yeah, no, I think that's that's really, really interesting. So Can't Even, I'm so excited to everybody read this book. You are, you know, just amazing at following this culture. And I, I really think culture just overall is something that we're all trying to figure out with all of these generations. And, you know, how do we how do we just make things easier for people, right? And make them happier, make them, you know want to be who they want to be. And I think that's, I love the fact that you're really getting people to really focus in on that. Cause I think it's, you know, not just for millennials, but also for people who are managing millennials or who have kids that are, are millennials. Like I really think, you know, it's a much bigger audience than just, yeah, I'm in it right now. Absolutely. Uh, huge. And so I always ask this last question. So what makes you unstoppable? Uh, my ability to work all the time, but I'm trying to fix that. So I think that that, that's the thing that makes me traditionally unstoppable. The thing that I think actually makes me unstoppable is I find pretty much everything interesting. Like I, everyone's life stories, everyone, like weird histories, all sorts of things, you know, everything can be interesting. I like stories too. And yeah, it's interesting finding out people's stories and where they're from and what makes them tick and super, super, super interesting. So where do people find you, Anne, and find the book? You can find me at annehelensubstack.com or just Google my full name and, and Substack. And you can find the book, if possible, through your local indie bookstore. They need our support more than ever right now. Just call them up, get on the phone and actually order it. Or a great alternative, if you don't have a local, is bookshop.org, which donates proceeds to local bookstores. So I love it. I love it. Great. Well, thanks everybody. And if you liked this episode, definitely give high marks to Anne and and subscribe to our podcast and everybody have a great rest of the week. Before we sign off, I want to talk to you about fear. People like to talk about fearless leaders, but achieving big goals isn't about fearlessness. Successful leaders recognize their fears and decide to deal with them head on in order to move forward. 
This is where my new book, Undaunted, comes in. This book is designed for anyone who wants to succeed in the face of fear, overcome doubts, and live a little undaunted. Order your copy today at undauntedthebook.com and learn how to look your doubts and doubters in the eye and achieve your dreams. For a limited time, you'll also receive a free case of Hint Water. Do you have a question for me or want to nominate an innovator to Spotlight? Send me a tweet at Kara Golden and let me know. And if you like what you heard, please leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow along with me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn at Kara Golden. Golden. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.